Welcome in the house of fun. Welcome in the house of fun. Welcome to episode 58 of Don't Shoot the Gingers. I'm your co-host, Greg Larson. And I'm John Giles, the Chopstick King. Oh, nice. Did you sell some chopsticks today? No, I just had sushi. And Greg, let me tell you, I I chopstick like a like a kink. I, you know how sometimes the little rice modules fall off into your styrofoam tray. Picking those up one by one with my chopsticks, no problems. That's really impressive. What are you drinking? <laughs> um, it's a tall boy Labatt Blue. Nice, it's a dude. Canadian. Very Canadian. Yeah. Very Canadian. Very Buffalo. Um, <clears throat> probably like two months ago, my, I think it was my brother-in-law was sent out to get beer and we, and I just told him like, yeah, get some Labats. It's good. Like football drinking beer and stuff like that. And he came back with tall boys and we're like, Oh, that's, that's quite a lot of bad beer. <laughs> oh yeah. Labat reminds me of the old days. Yeah. He had like two racks of tall boys. So we've been slowly pushing through it. I think I've got two or three left. Hell yeah. That's that's definitely beer. That's drinking beer in a basement kind of beer right there in a cold environment. Yes. Well, so I used to drink it at – there was a bar we went to for trivia every Tuesday, Tavern on the Tracks, and it was a Buffalo Bills bar. So that was like their beer every day. And a six-pack – a bucket of six was only like $10. Nice. So for trivia, you get a bucket, and then the next person gets the bucket, next person gets the bucket, and you just cycle through – and you make sure that you're always on the, oh, I got to go out right before it's my turn to buy the bucket. That's this. That's, I got to tell you, I don't agree with that behavior. <laughs> I don't think I do it very often. I think, I think every now and then, no, I'll tell you, I don't think I ever did it maliciously. Uh, I think. What else could it be? Well, no, I like, all right, there's five, like four people at the table yep. and we've ordered, three, we've ordered four buckets and now it's me from number one. It's like, okay, well, gotcha. if I start off again, we've all ordered. Do I go? It's my turn. Now we've that, all done. How you. many more? Yeah. So, like, at that point, it's like, well, it's my turn, but I'm going to go before I buy the next round. Yeah, I, I get – now that makes sense. Bat and lead off. You're going to be screwed. You're not going to get through the rest of the order. I don't think I would ever be number four in the order and not – order my bucket i wouldn't Amen, let brother. one order two order three order and then me just be like bye okay that's <laughs> what i thought you were saying gotcha got no, no 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 i'm not that shitty of a person good uh, although if third degree burns is following yet i don't know if he's on it yet tonight or not but no, he I might tell too. you otherwise that i am that shitty of a person i i believe it um before we get into the meat of the episode can i tell you can i give you you and the fans a quick only fans update Oh, uh, actually, yes, yeah. you can. But Greg, I've been working on something. Okay. I have. Uh, I want this to be a recurring theme. I want OnlyFans to be a recurring theme on our on our podcast. We we have to do an update every single time. So yeah. I've made a jingle that airs before all every time we talk about it. So anytime you want to talk about, it, just press the jingle button and give it a go. Press the jingle button and we'll start. On Zencaster doesn't matter <laughs> okay i'm pressing it on slack yeah greg larson comedy and sex greg larson comedy and sex 
Greg Mercy, comedy and sex. Comedy, comedy, comedy and sex. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I definitely didn't work for two hours today. I just edited that. <laughs> That's awesome. So here um, we are, Greg Larson comedy and sex update time. Woo. So one one update, we leave the jingle as it is. I updated the the name of my uh, profile to just say Greg Larson comedy. No, no, oh no, but leave Greg Larson Greg Larson comedy and sex. It's perfect. Just leave that. Please, just leave it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Just leave that. Um, Wait, did you get a boo-boo on your thumb? Oh, no. I, it's a nervous fidget. This is like a cord wrap that I always have around my fingers. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I you're good. I was just you. like – I was fingering myself too hard and I accidentally got some rug burn. Um, <laughs> I updated it to just be Greg Larson comedy. What I've started to do, I've realized, is like – in stand-up comedy, they always say like, oh, don't post your early videos from bombing or like your first couple of years in stand-up because then people won't be able to get that image of you out of their head. But like people, there are so few places that are actually doing stand-up right now. People are like desperate for new content, <clears throat> especially stand-up content. And people love seeing behind the scenes shit. Like anyone, not anyone, but a lot of people are cranking out like YouTube specials and Netflix specials. And that's like super polished and impressive. But people want like behind the scenes, like the shitty nitty gritty. So my OnlyFans is all, every single set that I do, I record now. And it doesn't matter how bad I bomb because trust me, it's like 80% of the time I eat shit so hard. It's embarrassing to watch back. Um, so that's what my page is all about. I now have four followers. Shit. And I got a message... I got a message uh, a couple days ago from somebody that says, love your content, handsome. Sure. And I responded, thank you. If you want, please leave a tip. And they left me a $10 tip, dude. Oh! <laughs> First money from OnlyFans. Dude, that's <laughs> going to pay for our podcast. <laughs> I know, dude. <laughs> Frick yeah. Man, what did you, did you have any further uh, communication with them? Did they want I you to do anything? Oh, yes, I did. Uh, they asked for explicit dick and cum videos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so now they made a request to send them a hard cock pick because they love gingers. P.S. I don't know if this is a boy or a girl. I don't want to know. Um, I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter, but I also, just for my own sake, I just prefer to leave it ambiguous. Okay. I would prefer to imagine that I'm doing this with a woman. And, um, that's, uh, the home, my homophobic moment is that I don't want to jerk off for dudes. Um, so they offered $10 for a hard dick pic and the message is wide open right now. And I have to make the decision. Am I going to send them a dick pic or not? So I, to get more money in the future, I feel like you should, because it yeah. opens up the avenue of, um, pay for play. You, you'll do anything for a couple dollars <laughs> <laughs> in the messages. I won't the, I think the main page just stays, uh, standup content, but if sure. people want a message, I'll fucking oh, do anything in the messages. Okay. Now I was busy today with the jingle <laughs> and 
And when I finished the jingle, I thought that's not enough, and I needed to do something else. So I made a I made a little rap for you. Oh my god! Uh, and depending on how much you like this rap or not, you might need to start having people pay to play because this rap is telling people that you will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so ready, dude. If it's anything like the jingle. All right. Keep in mind, not a professional rapist. Uh, I don't have any any beat behind me, and I I pray that you don't beat because I won't be able to keep on beat with you. So I'm just going to go into it. <clears throat> for just a few bucks you can have some peen he'll lick your funny bone if you know what i mean he'll make some laughs and he'll do a trick he does the helicopter when he spins that dick there's no embarrassment he's totally woke for an extra 60 cents he'll tell a better joke i'm running out of rhymes and i'm running out of time subscribe to greg and you'll have a good time man you put those chopsticks to work today son yeah so if we do this rap, if we if this rap is the official song of Greg Larson comedy and sex, uh-huh. you have to be able to do the helicopter. Can't. And for not. an extra 60 cents in a tip, you'll do a better joke. That I can do. The helicopter I can attempt. It's more like, you ever seen one of those goofy little hats that a little boy wears with a little propeller? That's the <laughs> yeah. best version of a helicopter I could do is a little boy <laughs> propeller. A little boy propeller on the tip of your dick? <laughs> you just... <laughs> yeah i dig that man i'm proud of you man i'm proud of you. you got your first ten dollars it's like it was insane how does it feel comparatively to like your first job it's uh, first dollar you made a uh, first honest buck you made at, at your first job compared to first, now first job dealing blackjack this feels better okay i'll put it this way it feels pretty good because technically they're pay- they paid me for my comedy. That's what they're tipping me for because I haven't shown them my dick yet. But so that would feel amazing because that's like the first actual money I've ever made from comedy. But it's okay. kind of like undercut because it feels like it was like a means to an end. Like yeah, they, they're like it's foot a prerequisite. Door. Yeah. It's a so, prerequisite. They give you a $10 and, and it's um quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know um, what's happening. So I would say as far as money that I've ever made from doing anything, it's up there. Like that $10 feels, it's the second best $10 I've ever made. Uh, Second only behind money that I got for my memoir, which I just got the, the, the catalog entry just came out from my publisher, University of Nebraska Press. Catalog entry. (laughs) I know it's a hell of a horse. Uh, it's good. But anyway, the money that they paid me as an advance for that, that's the number one money that I've ever made. And that's what you're living on now, right? Um, I'm living – that's part of it. I'm mostly living on old ghostwriting money from uh, – Oh, that's clients. right. You told me that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like unless you have any more in the OnlyFans sector. No, that's it. Um, and I don't think we need to play the jingle on the way out. I think the jingle is just the intro to the segment. And then we just move on to the next segment afterwards. Um, but I feel like this is as good as time of any just to get into uh, what the purpose of this pod was today. Because we kind of already started talking about it, started touching on it a little bit. Is a look, a delve into who you are and why you are the way you are. Like, I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, the very first question you asked me on episode 57 was, you know, you knew I was from Winston-Salem. You knew that that was my 
my birthright, and then from there you didn't know anything else. So the moment I was born to when you met me in college, everything was kind of a blur, a few stories here and there, but nothing. So I'm opening up the floor to you. Tell me about young Greg, where you came from, how it developed you. And that will be the shittiest interview of all time because I asked just an open-ended question, and now it's up to you to go for tough for 45 minutes. Open-ended is good, <laughs> man. I'm down. I, I mean, so I grew up in a town called Elk River, Minnesota. I didn't even grow up. I say I grew up in Elk River, Minnesota, which is like a suburb of uh, Minneapolis, Twin Cities area. But I actually grew up in a little town outside of that little town called okay. Ramsey. And I have four older brothers. So it's like when I grew up, I was like the uh, I was like the family mascot, I guess, or like the family. Um, it's like anytime there's like a tense moment, I would be the one who's breaking the tension with like some joke or like, oh, sure. I used to watch, I used to watch the Simpsons all the time. I would watch episodes over and over again until I memorized them. And then my brothers would be like, Greg, do the lemon tree episode. And I would just go into, I would do every, I would describe every scene. I would do all the dialogue and it would go on for like maybe two minutes until they were like, okay, this is awkward. You've broken the tension <laughs> enough. That's, that's enough. Um, Can you still that, do that today? No, no. I, there's probably really only two episodes I could do that with, and um, they're gone. I mean, if I watched it again, I, I guarantee you, like a lot of it would come back. But uh, nah, it's gone. It's lost, and I've probably filled it up with just a bunch of other BS. Yeah. Well, not yeah. asking you to do it, but what were those two episodes? Oh, the what one was two a memorable one. Yeah, the one was a uh, is the episode where. Um, the Springfield rival. I can't remember the Springfield rival town's name. It was at Ogdenville, but um, there's a lemon, uh, like a famous lemon tree that the Springfield gang, including Bart, like stole from the neighboring town. Uh, that was one of my favorite episodes. And the other episode, I don't remember the main plot point, but uh, Homer pays his taxes late. And uh, that's all I can remember from it. That's a great episode. <laughs> yeah. you've painted such a beautiful picture I, uh, <laughs> Thank you. I think in my life I've seen nine episodes of The Simpsons oh, I wasn't wow, allowed okay. to watch it growing up and then I got to the point where like, I feel like as an adult I would still enjoy it but I just didn't have that childhood nostalgia toward it so yeah. it's just never something I've been drawn to it's um, only so a nostalgia trip exists in your mind is now it exists in my mind that's good you know it's interesting you can like tell a lot about somebody's upbringing based on whether or not they were allowed to watch the Simpsons. Yeah. It's like there were kids, there are kids who could watch the Simpsons and there are kids who were not allowed. And it, that was the only show that was with it. There's no parents who are like, don't watch Ricky Lake. It's like, no, it's either the Simpsons or not the Simpsons. Well, I wasn't allowed to watch <clears throat> Ren and Snippy. I wasn't allowed to watch. Uh, uh, oh, there was another one, not angry beavers, but similar to angry beavers. Um, oh shoot. I can't remember. Uh, Rock. No, I, I could watch Rock as modern life. I don't know, Ren and Stimpy was definitely one of them, and it yeah. was just like it's inappropriate. Re well, Ren and Stimpy was pretty raunchy. Like that one, yeah. I get. They're like eating their own shit and stuff. Yeah. Or at least the episode but I it... saw. <laughs> that, that's the same episode that Homer paid his taxes. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. You're conflating episodes now. And then, but, um, right. yeah, keep going. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's uh, in Elk River. Is so like. 
it was a pretty lonely, ironically lonely upbringing because I had these older brothers, but then they're all so much older than me that they just like moved out. And then all this, it was like, oh, all these people, seven of us in my family, plus the dog. And then all of a sudden it was just like me and my parents. And I was just like living in the forest. We were on a lake, all these animals. What, what were their ages? Uh, they're uh, they're the older brothers, than me. Yeah, the animals were five. They're all probably dead now. My, the brothers are five years older than me, eight years older than me, twelve years older than me, fourteen years older than me. Oh shit! So by the time you were thirteen, everyone was out of the house, and yeah. you had all of high school loan. Exactly. Um, and then like it, so it was just like me biking around, reading comic books, and like writing. Uh, I don't know what writing jokes. I remember I. I had this joke book. God, there's some, I, I cataloged it somewhere, but I had, I started writing jokes, I think in 2004, like when I was 15 years old and they were, are you a Norm MacDonald fan? Like, you know, his sure. joke style, like it was anti jokes in the Norm MacDonald vein. I fucking loved Norm MacDonald and um, all of the jokes basically just amounted to like long meandering stories and the only funny part of the joke was the fact that I chose funny names for the people and that the, it always ended on an anti-joke, like always anticlimactic. That was like 95% of the jokes that I wrote. But um, yeah, that was kind of like how I staved off loneliness and uh, reading comic books. And then uh, by the time I got to high school, somewhere around there, like 15, 16, my mom like started to get really sick. I mean, she eventually like 10 years after that, she died. But like that time she was like so sick that my dad like started taking care of her. And all of a sudden as like a 16, 17, 18 year old, I was like, oh shit, there's really, there's nobody here to take care of me. Um, Cause they, all my brothers are gone. And these, my dad is like emotionally focused on my mom. So it's like, oh shit, I'm going to have to be my emotional parent for the most part, which I didn't realize until, you know, decades after the fact with like therapy and stuff. Um, so it's like that turned and me a into like, time when you were 17, 18 years old. Like this yeah. is like when you're still like forming yourself is like the, the decisions you make when you're 17 or 18, as shitty as it is affect how you go to college and what jobs you get in the future. Oh, big time. Uh, yeah. like I went, I was not a good student at that point. I went out, uh, and like smashed a lot of mailboxes. Like my buddy would come by. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I thought that was a made up thing that people did not in the upper Midwest, baby. I would sleep in the basement cause I liked it cold and my buddy would come by at like 2 AM and this was before we had phones. So like, we'd just have to at school that day or something, we'd have to be like, all right, I'm coming to your house at 2 AM, be outside. I would sneak out of my, the basement when like the elevated basement windows run out and we would have baseball bats and we just go around smashing mailboxes. We'd break onto people's properties and like just just to fuck with people, we'd like move their lawn furniture around. Or like we there if we got really um if we got really daring, we'd move their deck furniture around. Wouldn't destroy it, but just move it around just to fuck with them. Let them know someone was there. Yes. We're, not to go off tangent, did you remember were you a part of the group that uh defaced the Tri Sigma house that went through? Not that I'm aware of. That sounds like they something had, I'd be a part of, but they had a big hanging purple bench with three sigmas on it. Uh-huh. And at two in the morning, we went and stole the bench, 
took it back to the house, painted the whole thing purple, put it, put Sigmas on backwards, and then let it dry, and then hung it at 6.30 a.m. And for two weeks, it sat there, and not a single person <laughs> noticed for two weeks. And eventually, we got a call, and we put uh, our like names on the bottom of the bench. If they ever looked at the bottom, they would be like, yeah. property of Captain. And two weeks later, we got a call. Did you guys mess with our bench? Yeah, that's the type of shit you did. Just like, yes. let them know that you were there. Yes. And the slow burn two weeks later after the fact, it's, it's a form of low-level psychological terrorism. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was just like in a sort of like self-destructive mode at that time. I was obsessed with baseball. Like, I thought I was going to be a major leaguer. I thought I was going to be like the scrappy little shortstop who can't hit but is a really good fielder, stealing signs. Uh, I would have made a great Houston Astro. Um, I was just like running, couldn't do shit, but I just thought I was going to like work my way up. Uh, and then I went to like a D3 school near my near my uh, hometown called Hamlin University. Only Pipers. Hamlin Pipers. For the sole purpose, I didn't care about the academics. Like school was no longer like a thing that I cared about. I only cared about baseball. And then I got cut. Now, let me tell you something. Getting cut from a Division three school team does not happen. Like when I told people I got cut, they're like, wait, that's against the rules. Like you can't do that in a Division three school. That, the school I went to literally had fewer people than my, call, or than my high school. And so it was not, this was not. Like you like, saw the coach in lunch every day. <laughs> I, I what? You saw the coach who cut you in lunch every single day. <laughs> yeah, right. There's nowhere to hide in a 2000 person school. Um, and so I was like, what am I doing here? Um, my parents had moved to Florida at that point. So I was like, fuck it, dude, I'm going to transfer. And so I transferred to Winthrop and then I actually cared about school and shit. Um, went to school there. Like I, that, that's the thing is like, I, I fell out of love and love. The baseball to me was my first love. And it's been like an on and on again, off again relationship ever since. Sure. So like I left, I'd stopped caring about baseball for a few years. And then my senior year of college, I got back into it as a uh, equipment manager for the Winthrop baseball team. And I fucking love that dude. Like I would go out there and shake fly balls, uh, catchers would do like fielding practice and I'd catch baseballs at first base. Like I could have done that shit over and over for hours on end. I loved it. Um, and then after I graduated, it was like 2011 middle of the recession. I had an English degree. I still loved writing books. Like I, but you know, there's that part of your mind. That's like, I have this dream of what I want to do. I did comedy in, in college I wrote some in college and I was like, oh, I want to do stand-up comedy and I want to be an author. But it's like, I had this programming, I think like a lot of people do that that's not a realistic way to live your life. That that's something that kids do or that's something that a fun thing to do in college. And so, you know, I gave up doing stand-up comedy after college and I didn't write a ton in those couple of years after college. And so what I did is the only job experience I had was washing jock straps. So I got a job washing jock straps for a minor league baseball team. I want to, I want to pause real quick, please. <clears throat> Cause I want to, before we dive into 
the job. Yeah. I want to backtrack <clears throat> and figure out more along the lines of why things happen. Please. So, so you were in small town USA and then you went to college, small town USA, division three, Hamlin, 800 students. Um, why Hamlin and not university of Minnesota or something similar? Yeah, I don't, th- I think Hamlin was easier to get into and I was scared of a big school. Is like, oh, I'd get swallowed up at a big school. Okay. Uh, and University of Minnesota, there's no way. Like Hamlin, I still had the illusion that I could, like I wanted to play baseball. I was like, Hamlin is a small enough school that they can't, these these guys, there's okay. no way they could cut me. So then, <laughs> then yeah. Oh, no. So, so, so then you had the illusion of, I don't want to get lost in the big school. So yeah. then you move from Hamlin, very small, to Winthrop, decent, 6,000 yeah. students. No, nothing, no super university, but still big, across the country. Had you ever yeah. even been in the state of South Carolina before? Never. Like, What nope. was the reasoning there? I mean, looking back on it now, I just wanted to go somewhere that was so different. I think a lot of it had to do with escaping like the turmoil of my family's drama with my mom being sick and all that. And I wanted to go somewhere that was so different that neither I nor anyone in my family had ever been there before. And South Carolina was like the most foreign state that I just knew nothing about. Never been there. I didn't want to be cold anymore. Like I couldn't handle the Minnesota winters anymore. I was done with like those winters are brutal. Like I already have enough issues with depression. Like the last thing I need is a six month winter. That was a big one. I didn't want to be, um, I, it, to me, it was the most foreign state that I could pick. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. it's very similar to what I did. Now, granted, it wasn't an incredibly foreign state because I went from North Carolina to South Carolina, but yeah. it was the, my graduating class, 85 members of my graduating class are going to App State, 82 are going to University of North Carolina. If I go to either of those top two options, I'll just restart high school. So let's go somewhere else that I will never have to, I can just reinvent myself in whatever way I need to. That's a hundred percent it, dude. Especially like I went to at my first school, Hamlin. Um, like there were people that I knew from high school at that school and there were some of my closest friends and God bless them. But I was like, man, my friends in college are my friends from high school. That doesn't feel quite right. I still, I, every now and then keep in touch with the guys from my high school and like very sparingly, but when I do, I realize that they are still in the same friend group 14 years later. Yeah. Like the guys that I used to play touch football, flag football with back when I was 14 years old, that group of 12 guys that would go out to the football field every single Saturday, they are still a click of guys 20 years down the road now. Yes. And that is mind boggling to me. Like I don't have the same friends I had two years ago. And yeah. these people are holding on to this. Like, I don't even think they're friends as much as they're just memories and they're, they're They cherish each other. And like, I don't actually like the guy, but he's part of my life. Yeah. I've seen that before too, man. Like in my hometown, even like, um, you see people stay friends because it's almost like they're grabbing onto something that used to be. And it's never, it never feels, maybe I'm projecting, but it never feels like an authentic friendship. It's just, well, 
it doesn't feel like a kind of friendship that challenges you or makes you grow. It feels like a friendship that a regressive kind of friendship. It, it is. And we still have it to an extent because when we hang out with our friends from college who like, we haven't seen them in two years, three years gaps. And then we come together and we rehash the same old stories. And yeah. then we revert back to how we were when we were 21, yep. 22 years we old. And that's kind of, they've lived their entire life, not even having to revert back because they've always been in that 14 year old standpoint. Yeah. Um, and so it's a good thing that we've done what we do and just revert back every now and then. Yeah. It's like going back to see your family. Like you're always going to be, no matter, you could be the president of the United States, but if you're your parents' kid, you're always going to be their kid. Uh, it's like that, except all the time. <laughs> well, let's move from Winthrop yeah. to right out of Winthrop. Yeah, That was... 2008 or 2010, 11, 11, 12, 11, immediately after you went to uh, Aberdeen or you got your job working for Aberdeen. There was a period of almost a year where I was just living. I moved in with my parents in uh, Southwest Florida in a retirement community. Dude, just imagine me in a retirement community, you know, like I was watching Mad Money with Jim Cramer. I was going golfing every day with the neighbors. I was, <laughs> dude, that was ah, it was brutal, dude. Question. I um, yeah. Did you hook up with anyone over sixty-five? No, dude. I was oh. like, I was in a relationship from the time I was a senior, and I was in a long-distance relationship with her at that time. Um, and she was under sixty-five, and oh, so okay. um so we're long distance and then i got the uh, aberdeen job in spring of uh 2012 okay so let's go into this aberdeen job now um i don't know how much you want to talk about it because i I do plan on talking about clubby with you in the future closer to the release date so i don't know how much you want to dive into clubby information all all it's all open okay well you always struck me as a uh not machismo but like big character you're you you are you try to be the the man in the room whenever you're in the room and not negative not positive either it's just that that is just a personality trait that you have and in most situations it works because everyone else is likely to be a little bit more sheepish than you so you are able to command the room you're able to run the room and now you go to Aberdeen and now you're surrounded by 30 grown men slash young adults, just like yourself that have all had that exact same characteristic their entire life. And they are professional baseball players. They've got this extra little chip on their shoulder, extra cockiness. How, how quickly did you fall down a ladder when you got there? Oh, it was, Oh yeah. Like I was all, the thing is like, I had already been knocked down a ladder by the fact that I felt like super that, that version of me that you just described, I felt that throughout college. But then afterwards, just imagine like staying in a retirement community for a year. Like it just wore me down. So I was already socially anxious. My relationship was on the rocks. I was like, oh, I'm never going to make money doing anything, let alone doing the stuff I love. So I like my uh, confidence and like my confidence was an all time low. My insecurities were at an all time high. And so like when I walked in to the clubhouse I got it set up, and when the players first arrived, I, I scattered. I ran from them immediately. I scurried off back to the equipment closet to hide from them because I was just so scared of like, 
uh, it, was, it was just so embarrassing to be like the towel boy. And the thing is, like, I admired these guys. I, I didn't want to admit it to myself at the time, but like, I wanted to be them so bad. I grew up thinking I was going to be a baseball player. I fucking learned that I sucked at baseball. And here I was so close yet so far away that it was these almost guys like a living dream that you wanted for so long. And you are in charge of making sure their dick doesn't smell. Exactly, dude. And I, if I had to suck their dick, I remember there was one time, one of the coaches, I hated this fucking guy, Brian Graham. That guy was the hugest douchebag. I'm glad he's out of professional baseball now. Um, I hated him so much. He was just so condescending. I had an interaction with him where he got out of the shower and he asked me if I would shave his back. And oh. there was just this, this split second where I didn't, I didn't realize he was joking. And there was a part of me that was like, if, if he's asking me to shave his back, I guess I have to. Like, I would have done it, dude. As I was 23 years old. Man. So they knew that they had you, like, under their thumb. Some, some guys, yes. Um, most guys, as a 23-year-old in single A, I was 23 at the time, most guys were a couple years younger than me. And so they would – I was a peer, but they would mostly treat me with respect. Like – Players, it wasn't a problem. Sometimes a coach, Alan Mills, you I'm sure you remember from Clubby, the pitching coach, he and I had a tumultuous relationship. He would sometimes try to, he would successfully intimidate me. This is a man who, by the way, once knocked out Daryl Strawberry. Um, conspiracy theory about that. So long story short, 1998, Orioles, Yankees get into a, a brawl. Alan Mills relief pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles takes Yankee star Daryl Strawberry in the middle of the brawl, knocks his ass out into the Yankees dugout. Mills gets tackled. If you watch the video on MLB.com up until like the last year or so, here's my conspiracy theory. The video man for the uh, major league baseball website is a Yankees fan. Major league baseball headquarters is in New York. It's, Infiltrate all kinds of Yankees employees run that. Those all fuckers. The Yankees are the most franchise. It may, it makes sense for the Yankees to be lifted up on a little bit higher pedestal. Yes, I, I I agree. It does make sense, but it has consequences. And I think one of those consequences in this circumstance, I think those fuckers scrubbed that video because you can find the video on the MLB website of the brawl. They scrubbed the video of the actual moment where Mills punched out Daryl Strawberry. And it wasn't until this year where somebody put in a grainy ass YouTube video where you can actually see the moment where Mills punches him out. And it's the first time I've seen it in all the years I've been looking for it. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> okay. This is great. This is great content, by the way. I feel like every every line, every time that we have a podcast, there is a moment where we have incredible. Okay, so right now Armando Benitez just hit a home run. No, Armando Benitez is the pitcher. Ted Williams hit the home run. I got it right, yeah. Okay, he plunked the guy. Bernie Williams right. Oh, the brawl is happening. Yep, Tino Martinez just got plunked in the back. A lot of these punches. A lot of yeah. very ineffective these punches. Armando Benitez punches as oh, wild as his fastballs. Yes! Oh, I saw the punch. Oh, he came everybody in a cold cocked him. He, he flew in. He was out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden he just kind of came in like this and punched it into the dugout. 
do they no, do they show the next moment of actually in the dugout with it would be really grainy if you could see it okay hold on i'm i'm going back all right punch yes he dives in. So he, this might not be Alan Mills actually, because this guy's wearing a, a, still wearing a jacket. Alan Mills would have been playing. No, Mil- no, no, no. Mills came from the bullpen. Okay, so he was wearing his jacket. He kind of came yep. in and leaned into him a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this video exists on YouTube. It only has four thousand views, but you're right. It was put up April of 2019. That's the one. Yep. That's the exact one. Before that video was posted, you couldn't find the actual punch anywhere because I think New York Yankees and. Uh, MLB employees scrubbed it so that they didn't make the Yankees look like bitches getting knocked out. Sure. My by, conspiracy by there. Dr. Allen Mills. That's right. <laughs> hey, um, so he's got weight. That means he has momentum behind the punch. So, Oh, yeah. Um, so Allen Mills was my uh, was our pitching coach. Um, and just for the listeners who don't know, so the team that I was – I was a clubhouse attendant, meaning that I was in charge of the equipment – I was washing jock straps. I was cutting up veggies. I was basically the team mom for this single A base, lowest level of professional baseball and uh, single A affiliate for the Baltimore Orioles. And um, I was there for two years. While you were there, uh, obviously there's a big, big conversation that's been going on for years about minor league baseball players not getting paid enough. And they're living on nothing and they have to, uh, get host families sometimes just to be able to afford the cities they're living in. Oh, yeah. If minor league baseball players don't get paid enough, what does team mom get paid? You don't have to go into specifics of numbers, but like on the echelon of people getting paid in the organization, how low is that? Ironically above most of the players. Okay. Where they, now it's illegal. Now teams can't, uh, now, Clubhouse attendants can't charge dues to players anymore. Like there's all kinds of sweeping changes in minor league baseball this year. It's going to be crazy, but I would charge the players dues and they would pay me dues for the privilege of uh, me cleaning their shit and feeding them. Okay. And then on top of it, I would get tips. I, you know, I had all kinds of scams going like uh, the stadium beer supplier would tell the stadium like, Oh, I lost the, uh, a few truckloads of uh, booze fell or a few cases of booze fell off the back. And then he would slip me a few cases of booze in return. I would slip him a few caps or a few baseballs from say a visiting team. He'd be like, yeah, can you get me a cap from the uh, Staten Island Yankees? I'll be like, see what I can do. Then I, I take the booze. I give it to the Staten Island Yankees coaches in exchange. They give me more gear. I exchange it for more booze. And I have some (laughs) running off the top. I use it to get more tips. Like I was trading in, uh, the players would break their bats, and then I would bring those up to the uh, up to the uh, get. What the fuck is it? The gift shop. Mm-hmm. People would buy the bats, and I would get a cut of the profits. Um, just all and kinds bat, of little schemes. If it's like the number one draft pick, the bat's going for thirty dollars. If it's a scrub, the bat's going for five dollars. The bats all cost the same. The bats were all twenty bucks, but it was if it was a scrub, it would stay in the barrel for months. And all the people were going off of was me writing the player's name and number on a piece of athletic tape and slapping it to the bottom of the bat. That was it. And so obviously, what am I going to do? I'm going to write fucking Sam Kimmel. Oh, God bless Sam. He was a friend of mine. He was a roommate, but he didn't do shit. <laughs> he, nobody bought his fucking broken bats. But if I write down Mike Yastrzemski, number 28 on the bottom of that, 
or uh, Trey Mancini on the bottom of that yeah. bat, that shit is going to fly off the shelf. So what did I do? I just made that shit up. Oh, every bat is a Trey Mancini bat. <laughs> they go back and watch the tape. And like Trey Mancini only broke nine bats this year, and there are 46 oh, yeah. bats at the barrel. <laughs> I mean, I feel bad now thinking about these people who think they have a certain connection to baseball history with these players, and it's just made up uh, because the club he just wanted another seven dollars and fifty cents. Their pride is worth seven dollars and fifty cents to you, and I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, in the question of where am I on the echelon, pe- most so people. Than I thought. Yeah. I mean, most people didn't know. Um, most people still don't know that clubbies make a lot more than they would have you believe because the f- what keeps us making money is the, is the perception that we don't make any money. Yeah. So we can run these scams. People give us good tips. And then all of a sudden, if somebody doesn't get a, a signing bonus, I was making more money than them. Okay. People who got like six-figure signing bonuses, obviously, I did not make that much doing a clubby stuff. So this is a situation where you're never, you don't ever count your tips. You, the moment, the moment someone gives you a piece of some, some a wad of money that goes in the back, and you will never look at that in, in public again because you don't want people to see how much money you have. Exactly, exactly. I had a separate, I had a fanny pack. I had a separate pocket for the money players gave me that went in the back nobody ever saw and then I had a front pocket with a few scraggly ones in the front for change it's like oh here one dollar two dollars three dollars and change mister uh yeah we definitely play up to the perception okay so for most jobs there's a uh window of time at the very beginning where you're insecure and you don't know if you're doing things right you don't know if people like you and you're just worried nonstop. so it seems like you had that at the beginning and then you move into a comfortable stage where you, you have the feel of it and like everything's working like clockwork and you know what to do. Any problem that comes your way, you were good. Did you get to that point? How quickly did you get to that point? It was way faster than I think in most jobs, probably in any other job I've ever had, because like you have no choice, like professional sports is just like this um, trial by fire or baptism by fire kind of situation where it's like, I was just thrown. You don't have a choice. It's like you're in there just expected to do your job, whether you're the pitcher or the clubby. Like I showed up and then the clubhouse is just all mine. So like I fucked up in the beginning some like, uh, you know, I'd scold players for trying to get bats from me because I thought they were trying to scam equipment. And like one of the veteran guys, granted at Singley, a veteran guy is 22 years old. He <laughs> pulled me aside. He's like, listen, man, you can give them baseball bats like this kind of stuff or like not putting out food for the players, not pulling out trash because I didn't realize that was my job or anything. Hector Velez is trying to scam you, man. He's got 19 bats in his bag. <laughs> Hector Velez! I didn't even put his name in the fucking book. Where'd you pull that one from? I followed you when you were at the Ironbirds. I knew the Ironbirds roster. Jesus, but Hector Velez, he didn't go anywhere. That's a hell of a name third to pull up. Baseman. I thought he was going to be something special. Uh, or was he second base? I think he was third. He was third, yeah. Yeah. I thought he was going to be something special. Um, I think I, I assume that because was he an international signing and not a, yeah, I think he was Cuban. Yeah. I think in my mind at the time, I thought like any international signing was going to turn out to be UNS Espedes. Um, I was like, oh, we got one. We got a yeah. Hector Velez. <clears throat> so. Yeah, no, those guys, the teams will sign about, they call it the boatload mentality. They'll sign as many international dudes, usually from the Dominican for as cheaply as possible. Then if one of them yeah. hits it big, then it's worth it. Sure. 
So, all right, you hit that comfortable stage pretty quick. Yeah. Then in most jobs, there's the time where you are too smart for your own good, where you think you know it all, and then you start to fuck up. And you get a couple days of fuck ups. Did that happen? Where you just, you, you started to, because you were too cocky, you were too confident, and you didn't know it all. Almost, almost. It, the, the thing is, like, this, this season was, like, such a grind. It's only, in short season, singly, it's only a three-month season. But it's like, I don't know, man. It's just a grind of days that just don't end. And, like, I've put in a full work day, and then the game starts. Like, it's just insane it's an insane environment. I was literally living in the clubhouse at certain points, but the only time where I got close, it's like, I couldn't fuck up. So it just didn't happen because my anxiety was high. I was like, Oh man, if I don't put it, if I don't put enough game balls in the uh, umpire's locker room, I'm going to get blamed. And then these people are going to be shitting on me. Like I just, I was such an anxious mess that I just didn't allow myself to fuck up. The closest I ever got was the last game of the 2012 season when, uh, Maybe you remember this from the book, but I decided that I was going to warm up the right fielder in the middle of the game <laughs> because all the bullpen guys, uh, like I hung out, I was closest with the uh, pitchers just because the bullpen was close to the clubhouse. Pitchers sit on their ass a lot. They bullshit a lot. They're weirdos. And I like that. And they're all bitching like, oh, I don't want to warm up the right fielder. And I finally just said like, dude, I would give anything to warm up the right fielder right now. And they're like, all right, dude, fucking do it. And so... I put on a jersey and I put on pants and last game of the season. So there's a lot of like Orioles um, royalty in the audience, in the stands. So like the GM, Dan Duquette was in the stands. Like Cal Ripken Jr. was up there. I don't know who the fuck, like the, the head of player development is up there. And I put on a jersey and I go out onto the field and I warm up the right fielder like wearing a, a Jason McCracken jersey. Uh, number 25, a guy who had got moved up from the Ironbirds a month before. And there was a second where the trainer Dan was Duquette. walking. I could just what? see Dan Duquette in the stands like, I thought McCracken was on Delmarva. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was thinking that, but I just thought, you know what? Fuck this. I thought I wasn't going to come back. I was like, this job fucking sucks. I hate it. Everyone's an asshole. If I get fired, good riddance. But uh, the trainer walked behind me and he's like, are you fucking kidding me, Greg? And I just looked at him. I was like, somebody's got to warm him up. And he just sat there and thought about it for a second. And he just like moseyed on his way. And it, <laughs> if somebody wanted to say something to the higher ups, I would have been out of there so fucking fast. But nobody gave a shit. Also, what what does that matter at that point? You're just playing catch. You can't, oh, you yeah. can't possibly fuck up catch that much. No, I mean, it's true. Like it wouldn't. It wouldn't matter, but it is one of those things in like professional baseball appearances matter so much that like it's the most corporate of any sport, I think, where um, it's so slow. It's slow like a corporate environment the game is, which I think makes people worry about appearances more. It makes people worry about covering their ass more like a corporation. And I think a lot of that just permeates throughout the baseball culture. I think you could spin it that you were trying to bring up a good appearance. If the right fielder is just standing there doing nothing, yelling at the bullpen, someone come out, someone come out, someone come out. Or if you went out there in street clothes and did it, it would be terrible. You took the time to give someone else the recognition, put on their jersey. You went out there, an anonymous do-gooder. That's all the things in the world that are good for the organization. 
I, I agree. Um, the X factor is whether or not I can actually throw a baseball. You know, like mm-hmm. if I went out there and I was like, you know, I was throwing it like a girl, then uh, it would be a problem. I know I'm not saying every girl can't throw or whatever, but let's no, face you it. just got canceled, so there will be but, no episode 59. Well, let's face it. Well, there's definitely going to be an ap- episode 69. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's right. the closest I got. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move away from Aberdeen. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna dive into a lot of Ironbirds talk when we do our actual clubby interview. Sure. Um. So I don't want to dive on it too much right now, but I want to keep pushing on. You're living in Austin now, um, yeah. and you are telling jokes. Yeah. Uh, you, you're living on ghostwriting. You're telling jokes every night, four times a week. Uh, right now, I'm with the pandemic. I can get on stage five to six times a week. With the holidays, oh. I, like last week, I could only get on four times a week because of Christmas. Okay. Yeah. But you've got a good schedule going on. Yeah. Um, do you do a new set every single time or do you kind of have some like old regulars like this week I'm going to really try to pump up this joke what's your joke writing process like I I have time set aside each day to write new jokes I have like an hour set aside to write new jokes and to tweak old jokes usually I wind up just writing jokes throughout the day like I'll just think of something random and I'll just tweet it just to like catalog it um so like my goal is to write one new joke every day. And then I also try to set aside time to watch. I'm not good at this part yet, but I want to get better at watching old sets. I videotape every single set, but watching old sets and like figuring out what worked, what didn't, like what body language got, what response and all this kind of shit. Um, each night I try to weave in old standbys with new jokes because doing all new sets, all new jokes every single time, I don't really, it's good for like building the joke writing muscle, but you don't really learn how to uh, polish a joke. Sure, like the that. delivery matters so much. And I could go out there and read a Dane Cook joke and it won't be funny at all because he has a very proper delivery and a, and a method that he does it with. Yeah. And he's learned that through probably telling that same joke 80 times. Oh, more than 80, like probably hundreds of times for sure thousands maybe um because that's the thing is that like when you see somebody like louis ck do his uh pedophile monologue on snl it's like he's walking or even uh, bill burr's recent monologue on like white wokeness and all that kind of shit it's like they're walking this tightrope of oh if they fall a little bit on either side they're gonna fall into just being a shithead so it's like they have to walk this tightrope and all people, most people see is that final product of like, wow, how did Louis CK just come up with that and walk that perfect tightrope of rationalizing pedophilia without being a fucking creep and also making it funny. But what people don't see is all the horrific shit that he had to say on stage in order to get to that point. Like when he first thought of that joke or when anybody first thinks of a joke, it's probably if it's something like that, like a school shooting or something crazy like that, or like a pedophile joke in that case it's probably going to be some horrible horrific thing that i'm going to say on stage and it's going to bomb for like weeks on end until i fix it up yeah so like okay so like if i go on stage with only new jokes like that 
Um, I'm just going to eat shit and I don't really learn anything that way. But if I only go on stage with only jokes that I know work, I'm not going to learn anything there either. So I just mix, I try to mix it up. I'm get. I'm trying to get better at that. I err on the side of writing too much new stuff. Okay. So I was thinking about how you do it and how comedians do it in general, because you talk about sitting down for an hour and just writing new jokes. And that is so foreign to me. The only yeah. things, and like, I'm not saying... I write funny material because I don't think I do. I, I but I, I see something and I think of something clever and I'm like, oh, it's clever to me in the moment, and like I got a chuckle and I might have even chortled out loud. But if I were to just to repeat that to someone, they'd be like, That's not funny. What are you yeah. what are you talking about? So how do you take that little moment, that little nugget? For for, for, yep. for instance, I, I remember one in particular. I was we were driving, we were in Vermont last week and we were coming home from Vermont. And there was a little street sign that said, you know, like New Haven, Connecticut, five miles this way, little Chicago this way. And in my mind, I thought, how little. And like, I thought that was a clever little like, I wonder how fucking little that town is. How, how, what the gall they have to fucking call themselves Chicago. But Mm -hmm. like, that's not a joke. And it's not even really that funny. But like, I feel like there is a tinge of something in there that you could turn it into something. And I don't know how to do that. Yeah, well, you you recognize like a little contradiction there, right? Yeah, yeah am I understanding it right? It's yeah, like yeah, like little Chicago, but at the same time, like we're in the we're in the middle of Vermont. There's this town doesn't even show up on a map, and they're calling yes. themselves little Chicago. Yeah, I mean, at the very best, you're little Montpellier, but like, yeah. <laughs> but what you're recognizing is that contradiction, and it's like, if you wanted to turn that into like a more funny joke. You just amplify that contradiction somehow. Um, But like when I'm, I don't sit down like for a full hour. I'll usually just like the whiteboard is where I do a lot of it. Like I'll have, um, I'll like write out a joke. Greg, those thighs, man, they don't quit. (laughs) (laughs) quit. (laughs) Like uh, today is a perfect example. Like I'll usually just write out a bunch of random stuff on a whiteboard. But like today, my buddy told me that I should do a joke about, um, like my dating anxiety, like I should find a joke about that. So I was like, I bombed with dating anxiety jokes for like the last week and I'm just trying to like tweak it and make it better. So like if I, if I'm fucking up with like a long form joke, I'll try and just turn it into a one liner so that it, it, it's like brings it back to its most like fundamental form. Right. Okay. So like today I just started with this, with this premise. I have terrible, dating anxiety I was like okay I'm just going to set the stage the most simple way I possibly can Um, and then I didn't know what the punchline was going to be so I literally just wrote I can't and then I just did a blank line to fill in whatever the punchline was going to be Okay. and then I knew that the, the kicker was going to be without having a panic attack. Okay, I can't even blank without having a panic attack. Yes. And so, like, that was that was the first... That's not a joke yet, but it, it gives me the framework of what I'm working with. So I was like, okay, how can I flip? How can I, like use the audience's assumption in this first line against them in the second line to surprise them and somehow 
just because if you say I can't even go on a date without having a panic attack, I was like, that's not fun. That's not funny. That's just the statement. It's just true. So how can you up it to almost like an anti joke where you expect this type of line, and all of a sudden you come in with this out in left field line? Well, it's not. It's not an anti joke. It's just like a misdirect. Like okay, okay. So I'm looking at. I was like, okay. I look at each one of these words. Which one of these can I use for a misdirect? What what assumptions? I was like dating. I was like, okay, that's that's an assumptive word, um, because dating, it doesn't. It's not obvious that that means like going out with another person. We just think it is because we. It use could it be his, putting something historically on a calendar. Exactly. So that's where I went with it. I said I can't use a calendar. Oh shit! Without <laughs> having a panic attack. And then, so that's like, that, that's a soft chuckle kind of laugh joke, right? Yeah. Like, and I realized that. And so I wanted to have like a, uh, something to back it up on top of it. So I have a throwaway line after I haven't, I'm going to do this tonight. I don't know if it works yet, but so I say, I have terrible dating anxiety. I can't use a calendar without having a panic attack. That joke conveniently glosses over the fact that I'm afraid to talk to women. So, <laughs> See, there it is. That's a yeah. good that last line is what does it because in your mind you're like, okay, the calendar, the dating, okay. Oh, I see what the fuck he okay. And right. yeah. I liked it. And so like that's that was the process for writing that joke today. And that's kind of similar to most jokes. Sometimes they'll just come to me fully yeah. formed and then I have to find out, like, say it on stage to find out if it bombs or not. Usually it does. And then I have to go back to the drawing board literally and tweak it. So how quickly do you give up on a joke? If you think it's like, if you think, oh, this might be a joke, I'm going to use it in, the, in a stage, and then they just bail. No one laughs. And uh, I might be able to tweak it, but I could probably just get rid of it. Put it put it in like the in the tickler file, and I'll come back to it in six months. Um, About a week. I, I think a lot of people would give it more time, but like I write so much stuff that... If it's not working, I'll just put it in the back and like my subconscious will figure out that problem down the line. But it's with something like this, I've been trying to write a dating anxiety joke for like a full week and it's bombed every time. But there's something about it, like it feels so integral to like the problems that I'm facing in my life. That's the thing. I'll give it more time if it's something that's like really deep to me. Like dating anxiety is like a huge problem and like a huge motivator for me. So like I want to be able to make it funny somehow. Flip anxiety and dates. So it's no longer dating, but it's dates. I have anxiety on dates. I can't even. That's something such a about good note. Greek jewels that are dates. That's such a good note, dude. You're so right. We're doing this in real time. Writing jokes with Professor Greg Larson. That is, an, that is a stellar note. Because there's a lot you can do with that. That's right. I, I like that, man. All right. I'm very happy about this. What what time is your set tonight? How how quickly can I get to Austin and watch this joke? <laughs> uh, the mic starts at 8, 9 o'clock Eastern time. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about tonight? We've been talking for about an hour right now. Wow. I, uh, yeah. So I, I don't want to push our luck with our listeners. They uh, Their drive time isn't this long. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything else that you want to push out tonight about, about your life? Something that we didn't cover? No, we did everything. We we covered all of the main beats of me. Mostly one one through uh, 24 or so. That's yeah. perfect. That's all they and, need to and, know. 
we're going to talk a lot more about Aberdeen Iron Aberdeen Ironbirds baseball when we talk about clubby in the future, and yeah. that means we're going to get into relationship complexity. That means yeah. we're going to get into uh, wild states of depression and wild states of anxiety. Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll get into all of that soon. Uh, but I'm glad we touched on a little bit of everything today, and I learned how to write uh, a little bit more jokes. Uh, I mean, you, you gave have- me a hell of a note just then. Nice. Did you have a, another joke that you wanted to share, or was this the one joke that you wanted to share with us today? No, I do have a I do have a joke. Um, this is just to preface it. This is the Star Wars joke. Okay. Okay. You ready? So, Luke Skywalker is on Dagobah, training with Master Yoda, and Yoda is a very strict Jedi. He's making, you know, you've seen Star Wars, you know, Yoda is making Luke pull X-Wing fighters out of the swamp. He's making Luke move rocks with his mind. I mean, it's just intense training. But what we didn't see in the movie was how much of a homophobe Yoda was. Yoda, the whole time that he was on Luke's back, Yoda was whispering all kinds of like anti-inflammatory, like, hate the gays I do. Like Yoda was just a staunch homophobe. But the whole time... Luke couldn't help but notice that Yoda might have been overcompensating for something that Yoda was always kind of giving little kisses on the back of the neck when he say this stuff. (laughs) And Yoda would sometimes not be wearing his little potato sack when Luke went into the hut at night for his teaching lessons. And Luke was like, I'm not buying this whole like anti anti homosexual rhetoric from Yoda. I'm going to see if I can trick this Jedi and so one night while Yoda's asleep, Luke sneaks into his hut and he steals those little breadsticks that, that Yoda liked to chump on. Luke stole those breadsticks. <laughs> Yoda, <ate> breadsticks? <laughs> Yoda, Yoda was a breadstick fiend. <laughs> he loved breadsticks. Huge Olive Garden fan. And Luke wrote a note outside of Yoda's hut that said, if you're looking for a good time, meet me at the hollow tree. And then he left a trail of breadsticks all the way to the hollow tree. And once Luke got to the hollow tree in preparation, waiting for Yoda, Luke just took off his entire outfit and started stroking, stroking his connection to the force nonstop. Uh, and suddenly, right when Luke started, Yoda awoke, sensing a disturbance in the force, saw the note and just picked up bread. Yum, yummy. And picked up breadsticks and got all the way to the hallow tree. And again, Yoda is supposedly a staunch homophobe. Luke is trying to, Luke is trying to trick him, trying to catch him unawares. Like I suspect that he's actually gay himself. Yoda gets to the hallow tree. Yoda says, Oh, Padawan, what are you doing? And Luke says, masturbating. during that joke i was playing little games in my head of like trying to say yoda phrases in some sort of sexual way and i couldn't get it. i couldn't i was like where the hell is he gonna do what oh that was fun man that was a fun journey <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad that's my only joke for the night all right well i've got another one i've got one please uh and i did write it down so bear with me that i had to pull it up while we were going so sure 
So uh, recently I've been I've been drinking a lot, but I, I've been making sure that I, I never hold onto the addiction for too long. So like in October, I drank a lot of beers and I uh, put on a lot of weight because I just kept pounding them down. So I realized I needed to do something new and I couldn't get rid of an addiction. So I just had to transfer the addiction elsewhere. So I started drinking liquor and you get drunk faster, uh, less volume. So I started losing a little bit of weight, but you just stay belligerent all day. And this addiction mm-hmm. wouldn't quit. It was, I had to keep drinking every second of the day. I had to keep going and it just became problematic. So I had to think, okay, what's a way that I could keep doing this, but not, you know, lose function. I have to work. I have to do things. So I started drying other things and like even milk, man, even fucking milk. I just kept pouring it into me and I couldn't stop. And I did the same thing with soda. I did the same thing with, with all these different things. And last week I tried break fluid. I tried break fluid for the very first time. Now I can stop whenever I want. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah, dude. Did you write that one yourself? I stumbled. I stumbled on break fluid. I said break fluid. That's the worst, man. Because that's not even integral to the joke, the, the the stumbling, but it still makes me so mad. I, I'm with you, dude. I, I'd be angry too. But I gotta ask, did you write that one yourself? Uh, the enti- the entirety of the joke, yes. The Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. The the brake fluid stopping thing was somewhere else, but the entirety of the joke was mine. Yeah. That's what's yeah. up, man. Yeah. Well, I feel happy now. I feel sad. <laughs> That I fucked up the the, the punchline. Yeah, I would I beat myself up for that kind of shit too. We're in uh we're in good companies. Maybe one day you'll stop. Hey, Chris Hansen jokes. <laughs> I'll never forget when you had a joke <laughs> and you oh, were yeah. talking about it for the entire car. We drove to Virginia for a set for you, I think. <laughs> what? And we did not drive to Virginia from South Carolina. I swear to God, we were in Virginia. We were in that. <laughs> Virginia or something like that and we had a set and we walked we, we went to like some pizza place that Chris Selinger knew and then right after that we went in and watched you do stand-up and you did a joke and you were talking about this joke and you couldn't give away the joke to us in the car and you just said it's about the, you gave us the punchline and I can't remember the punchline at this point it was like uh Chris Hansen you're such a cock block I think yes. that was the punchline. pretty obvious and you got on stage and you were meandering through the story and you were hitting a little bit and falling back and then hitting and falling back. And then you just kind of ended the joke and you never said the punchline. <laughs> and we're like, Classic. he forgot the, he forgot the funny part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that even with that punchline, I also forgot the funny part. Chris, <laughs> and Chris Hansen is a cock block is not the best. It's not the most brilliant thing I've ever written. <laughs> it was 10 years ago <laughs> yeah that's oh. funny dude if we went to virginia if we went to virginia for me to forget a punchline i apologize in the future maybe i'm, con- I'm con- conjoining two different road trips we had it but must I swear be. I we, were, we ate pizza at some podunk joint that chris ellinger knew and then like right beside it was a comedy uh comedy zone type place are you sure it was not the sk net cafe open mic the, oh fuck! That does sound familiar. Yeah, that's I'm almost certain what it was. Going to Virginia for an open mic is insane. Even I wouldn't do that. Oh man, I don't know why I have this memory so so vivid. 
Because I think that was around the same time we would have gone up to sell it, stayed with Selinger's uh, grandparents in their basement. I think that was around the same oh, yeah. time. That was uh, Chris Johnson's grandparents. That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but Greg, yeah. thank you for coming on, man. Thank, thank you. you. I, I learned a little bit more about you. You learned more about me last time. I learned more about you this time. The circle will go on. Uh, I want to open up the floor to our listeners uh, for us to, to email in or to, to DM you on Instagram or, or me on Twitter or me on Instagram. Hell, I have 21 followers now on Instagram. I've yet to post a damn thing. Let's get the, let's get John to 25 followers. Let's get me to 25 followers. And when we get me there, I want you all to start DMing us requests for what we talk about on the show. Uh, because we've got a nice tickler list of things that we're going to talk about. But if, if something is pertinent, if you guys have to know about what our favorite Mario characters are, we'll fucking rank them 1 through 82. Like, sure. We will do an entire podcast on that. Don't get me started on my original 151 in Pokemon either. I will Whew. I will give you my favorites. Beautiful. I'm Merv. Uh, wait. Oh, yeah. yeah. I want, I want to plug, uh, people can find me on Instagram at Greg Larson Comedy. People can find me on Twitter at the Greg Larson. Find me on OnlyFans at Greg Larson Comedy and pre-order my upcoming memoir, Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir on fucking Amazon. I saw it on Amazon, twenty five sixty four. I want to say it was. Yes, that yeah. sounds right. Steal, man. I've read it. It's worth $27. There you go. I would I would gladly pay twenty five. That's where you can find me. Nice man. Well, I'm proud of you for uh, for coming in here and opening up your soul, talking about talking about your time. Uh, I encourage everyone to to read the book when it comes out April first. Is that right? That's right. So read the book when it comes out April first, and we will uh, talk to you soon. You can find me at Puma Revive. That's P U M A R E V I V E D. That is on Twitter and on Instagram. Instagram, again, I have 21 followers. We want to get that bad boy up to 25. Let's get a 25, baby. I'm going to record next week. Uh, Greg, I guess I'll see you next week. I'm Merv Bagley. And I'm De'Aaron Fox. You're listening to Don't Shoot the Gingers. Love you. I'll say it back one of these times. <laughs> <laughs>